If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Colonel John Anthony Cash, who served in the Army as a rifle company commander in Vietnam. In this first part of his interview, Cash recalls hearing updates about the devastating battle at Bia Drang around a radio, serving in Operation White Wing, and several tragic stories from his tour. My name is John Anthony Cash, C-A-S-H. I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey. I'm an ROTC graduate from Rutgers University, and I just completed 32 years and eight months to seven months in active duty service. I was a rifle company commander of C Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Cavalry, 3rd Brigade of the 1st Air Cavalry Division. I don't know where the word came from, but while we were at Fort Benning, the word came out that no one would take white T-shirts to Vietnam. And so in the Army, in its infinite wisdom set, that means everyone has to die is T-shirts. I'm sure you've been to drugstore and looked and saw how many different color shades of green they have. And uh, writ dye, I think, is what we were using. And we had uh, dyeing parties and BOQ rooms, guys in the various neighborhoods would get together. And when we fell out for inspection, every conceivable shade of green was on everybody's T-shirt. And uh, I remember that by the time we got to Vietnam, most of us threw them away anyway because... In my case, for example, we found that you're a lot more comfortable if you didn't wear a T-shirt. But it's once again the Army's way of doing things. But being on the ship together, we are very well organized. We had a training program. I can recall they would bring platoons up at a time, and they would do actually PT, physical training, on the deck space that was available. I had the, uh, the privilege of being the ship newspaper's uh, editor. I won't say there was any attempt to tell me what to write or anything. It was mostly training things. I remember I would have to give the final draft on a mimeograph sheet to Colonel Moore to look at to make sure the troops were getting the right word. And it was mostly uh, bread and butter things like uh, how to call an airstrikes, uh, tricks of the trade. We actually would receive communications from somewhere back in the Army that would actually come in on the ship's communication system by radiogram or something of uh, lessons learned from the 173rd which was already in Vietnam at the time, things to avoid. And so on and we would uh, redo those and put them in our uh, newspaper. I remember we had the Air Force uh, Florida Air Observer team with us, and they would write articles for us about uh, how airstrikes can best help uh, people and so forth and so on. And we had entertainment. I recall they put on a talent show and... Uh, you got to know guys fairly well. We were, all the officers, of course, were in the few staterooms they had available on the ship. And we were really crammed in there, but we had a chance to really get each uh, guy in terms of personality and whatnot. That proved to be traumatic for me later when we had all the casualties in the uh, Eye Dragon affair because uh, 
it's a cliche that you're not supposed to get to know a guy real well because he might get killed. But literally, by having come over on that ship together, uh, we knew when we'd see names on the casual list of guys that we'd room with, that sort of thing. But on the other hand, it was probably a plus for us because it showed that rather than just have guys sit staring at the, at the sky while they were sailing across the Pacific, that we tried to make good use of our time, and it also made the time go faster. I can recall phrases like the, we call them the Pavin, People's Army of Vietnam. We didn't call them NVA at the time, and Viet Cong, that they had entered the war in great strength, and that they were trying to cut South Vietnamese, South Vietnam in half at the the uh, juncture of the uh, Central Highlands where we were along Route 19 from Pleiku to Quinyan, and that by putting us square in the middle of it, and then later the 4th Division came in at Camp Inari near Pleiku, that those American forces would disrupt that plan. And uh, I can remember the phrase, I went to a division headquarters meeting one time, and they were discussing the capabilities of the cavalry to deal with the enemy. And I remember a staff officer, Major Gibney, saying something along the lines of, we will use the concept of an elephant stamping out a flea with overwhelming firepower that we have to let the people here know that we mean business. And that's just about what they did. And like I said earlier, this is before they began to have constraints as to using excessive amount of gasoline for uh, helicopters and uh, ammunition for artillery. It was just, you got anything you wanted. And so that's what we did. And that's what we were told we were there to do. But the problem at my level was that you don't see the fruit of those efforts because at the general Kennard level, at the division level, the strategic concepts began to formulate and you can see the fruit of your efforts. To me, it was just patrolling and patrolling and patrolling and ambushing and a lot of times just writing letters to your wife and making sure nobody falls asleep. But it was only as I became... When I got promoted and I was able to see those things, that sometimes that in itself was a positive thing because it kept the enemy from doing something. That you don't have to fight all the time in order to be effective as a military force, as we proved with NATO. You know, they never had a war, but the Russians finally threw in the towel. And the same thing with the first calf. I remember it was either before or after White Wing, White Wing that General Kennard's headquarters put out a letter which explained in statistics what we had accomplished in about, what, the first three or four months. The numbers of uh, villages were now free from uh, VidCon control. The people could harvest the crops. And so it seemed kind of public relations to me, but at the time it was pretty effective because it was the first thing we saw was said, here's what we're doing. But the problem with the lower levels is you never really know that. I presume you could probably ask a guy that participated in the D-Day invasion. You know, you hear all the stuff about the greatest military maneuver since the beginning of mankind and whatnot. But some young private down there, he doesn't know that. All he knows is that he was either shot at or buddies got killed or they didn't got shot at. And all he was being told was to hurry up and wait and go over here and get on that helicopter, get on this helicopter, so forth and so on. And that presented a major leadership challenge to people like myself to try to keep the troops motivated because uh, they need to know that what they're doing is important. And uh, sometimes that's difficult. But we still had that feeling that something was very special about the first calf. And uh, guys like Colonel Moore and General Connard, whenever they showed up, you could they exuded the kind of confidence that made you think you just weren't some run-of-the-mill infantry guy. So even though you may not have had any contact or close with the enemy, you felt that what you were doing 
was important. I remember after I became the company commander, my wife sent me a copy of Life magazine, and it had an article about the troops in Vietnam. And I remember there's one phrase in there, the splendid generation of young soldiers or something like that fighting in Vietnam. Man, I took that thing and passed around every opportunity. I said, I want all your troops to read this and see this. And so on so on. Morale was pretty good. You know, the only time we ever did any real serious walk was walking to the LZ or away from the LZ to get to where we wanted to go. And it just sort of gave you, and this, of course, was because we weren't really up against any real serious anti-aircraft threat, a sense of you just knew that when you got on the ground, you were going to be well-rested, well-fed, two canteens of water, and it wasn't going to last very long. You were in good shape. And then the other thing, I'm sure it was in the back of everyone's mind, those medevac pilots, you knew that if you got seriously wounded, we had medics that would tell us. They'd get all the guys together and say, if the guy hasn't been shot in the heart or in the head, we'll save the bastard's life. And they just about did that. And so that was a big morale booster. As we got better at it, as far as coordination is concerned, and using the helicopters to deceive the enemy, you know, because you could hear them so many miles away, you know, they give away positions and whatnot. And if they could be used intelligently, where you could converge, you know, going in eight different directions, like the bombers, or when they used to fly over Germany, they'd try to hit the target at different altitudes, coming from different directions so that the anti-aircraft gunners would be confused because all they got to do is drop the bombs and get away. We try to do that with helicopters. But there again, the VC uh, tried to negate that by using, once again, minimum means to maximum gains. Punchy stakes. I can remember we had to land in a LZ, which had elephant grass almost as tall as I am. And so guys had to jump out while the helicopter was hovering. And I can remember inside a 10 or 15 minute ladder, 25, 30 guys had to put right back on the same helicopters and evacuate them because they jumped on punji stakes. And I used to take these punji stakes, which are slivers of bamboo, sometimes two and three feet long, and coat them with human feces or dried human feces and animal dung and whatnot. And that stuff would go for blood poisoning. And they had, we had to change our mission. And not one shot was fired. Once again, minimum means, maximum gain. Very good. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father, from Voyage Media, anywhere you listen to podcasts. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. I was at the assistant operations officer job at the time, and there were about a dozen, well, about maybe nine or ten guys 
in the brigade headquarters. We were all captains, and there's only one assistant operations officer. But we all carried the same title, and we were sort of stacked up there. I can recall we would read the intelligence reports and listen to the intelligence briefings, and there was some talk about a buildup of NVA forces along the Cambodian border area in the Chupang Mountain region. And we know that the 1st Brigade had already been sent up there to try to develop it when the Plainy Special Forces camp was attacked and the cavalry, I think the 1st and 9th Cav got involved and so forth and so on. And as a follow-on to that, we, the 3rd Brigade, were told we want to replace the 1st Brigade to maintain the pressure on the enemy. And I can remember Colonel Brown was a brigade commander at the time, standing at the map, and it was a big star right around the vicinity of what later became Elsie X-Ray, up on the slopes of the Chupang Mountain, saying, this is where we have to go. And uh, I remember I was asked to come to the map with Major Malay, that's M-A-L-L-E-T. He was the brigade operations officer, and we were asked to pick out LZs. And we tried to look for a landing zone that could, could... that could take in at least a company at the time. In other words, you can get a company on the ground at the same time. That gives you enough firepower capability and maneuverability potential with a rifle company instead of a platoon at the time. I remember we picked out one, which later became X-Ray. There was another one called Lime and Albany and a few others. And I remember Colonel Moore coming in and looking at the map and talking to his people about how they're going to make the reconnaissance over this area and fly in a certain kind of compass heading so as not to give away the plan to the VC. They went out and uh, conducted their recon and came back, and we were told that X-ray was going to be it, and all the other LZs were uh, decoys. And other than that, we just assumed that uh, it would be like it was for the 1st Brigade, a relatively dry hole, and then we'd go back to NK and uh, drink beer and write letters and so forth and so on. And when the First of the seventh hit that opposition at X-ray. I was on duty in the TAC, Tactical Operations Center, sitting there trying to keep interested. You know, there's so much boredom involved in the military. And we would hear a radio message. You knew everyone's voice. And then we realized these guys are really on to something. And then Matt Dillon, who was the Gregory Dillon, we called him Matt Dillon. He was the operations officer for Colonel Moore. He was usually pretty cool. Convoy. He was very excited. And I could tell that they were running into something. I went got Colonel Brown, so I don't know what it is, but they've hit into something big. And we all stayed glued to the radios for that next day and a half or so. And of course, you know the, the outcome. And it, I had no inkling because of the level that I was at that they were going to run into anything like that. It was only after the fact when all these war stories started coming out about all the that they'd run into and everything that we realized we'd hit something big. We kept a little blackboard about the size of that picture over there. And we listed the first or seventh, second, seventh. We had KIA, WIA, MIA. And we started, like you do tic tac toe, you know, make four and then cross it and then four and then cross it. And uh, we had gotten used to the idea of casualties in the sense that from the first days in Vietnam, there were sort of nickel and dime things like two KIAs here, three KIAs there, one WIA here. Here's a guy stepped on the mine. Here's a guy who got hit by a helicopter plate. So all this on. That you learned how to live with. But it was only after the second and seventh had its tragedy that it became overwhelming. When we ran out of space on the blackboard and you couldn't hear guys', guys voices over the radio that you knew. We knew by then that something terrible 
had gone wrong. It was a t- particularly uh, difficult because after we realized what the first and the seventh had done, we were just so filled with euphoria. And, you know, at an acceptable level of casualty, we'd done so well and so forth and so on. And I remember with the second and the seventh, it was the same thing. We were sitting around. Everybody said, when's the colonel going to call this damn thing off so I can get back down and can you get a beer, you know? And myself and Sergeant Russell were sitting there, and we started hearing all this shooting on the radio. You can hear rifle sounds over radio. They have a distinct sound. And people's voices started to rise. And then all of a sudden, we couldn't hear the S3 anymore. Or the operations sergeant, Sergeant Bass, because he was the guy. He was a very strong, outstanding NCO who actually ran the operations shop because the captain down there was relatively new. And there was pandemonium. Once again, either myself or Russell, we went to wake up Colonel Brown or get him. He was so busy doing other things. And before you know it, everybody was standing around uh, listening on the radio and something horrible was going on. And uh, there were other radio nets in the talk. And I remember we tried to go over to the fire support net, which is what the artillery uses to call in fire and was pandemonium. And we all kind of looked at one another. And then Sergeant Russell looked at me and said, have you heard Sergeant Bass on the radio? I said, no. I remember we were, half the guys didn't bother to see rations. We were just so glued to that radio. We had a little blackboard in the talk, oh, about 11 by 14, maybe a little larger. And we, as a way for everyone in the office, so we were already, of course, putting it in reports and whatnot, for everyone that came in and out of the talk uh, to feel, realize the intensity of what was going on. You could look at the casualty figures, which we had listed by battalion, and tell who was in contact, and then you could go read the journals, and you could listen to it on the radio. But this was a quick way to figure out who was getting hurt and who wasn't. And I remember it. by the time the 2nd and 7th was being dealt with very severely at uh, LZ Albany, that we literally ran out. Of, we were doing it in columns, and we finally just had to race the columns and put a, a total number for each battalion because we were running out of space because they were casualty figures were coming in so fast in second and seventh. I remember that uh, the reporting was coming in so fast and furious and there was a lot of confusion. And we were reporting, of course, to General Kennard's headquarters, and I don't think the reporting was accurate enough for them because, of course, they had to report to General Westmoreland's headquarters down in Saigon. And so they sent a lieutenant colonel down to the talk. And I remember I was on duty at the time, and he sat down Beside me, he said, John, what the hell's going on? I said, well, sir, I better talk to the brigade commander. He wants me to check him before we report anything to the division. And I remember I went to get the brigade commander, and he came into the talk, and he had some words with uh, Lieutenant Colonel, as if to say, the last thing we got to worry about is report to you. We're trying to sort out what was going on. And it's very important in a period like this to figure out where the problems are so that you can assist units that are, that are in heavy contact and, of course, emotions were running hard because we knew people were dying and so forth and so on. And I can't recall the actual time frame because we were there for Lord knows how long. But I remember looking up and seeing General Westmoreland. And he was there as well as his aide. And then General Larson, who had what we used to call Force Victor, the Trang. That was the intermediate headquarters between the division and um, General Westmoreland's headquarters. And uh, these stars were standing around. They were looking over our shoulders. And then I don't remember exactly when I see Hanson Baldwin and Senator Tower. I, I think they both arrived at the same time. They had been traveling for Vietnam, to Vietnam. But I remember Hanson Baldwin with his little reporter's pad out saying, what happened to the second and seventh? Well, he was just asking anybody in particular. 
I had an additional duty as the information officer, which meant that I had to brief the press. And I didn't particularly like talking to people at that level. I didn't want it because the information was constantly being modified and refined. And I remember, thank God, Colonel Meyer, who later became chief of staff of the Army, Shai Meyer, Edwin C. Meyer, was brigade executive officer. He was in second in command. And he came over to me, and I remember he told Mr. Baldwin, who kept banging him away in my ear, he said, I'm now the information officer. Captain Cash got many important things to do. And we had a briefing tent, which was a, a parachute that we used as overhead cover. And then we had sawdust floor with ammunition casings, empty ammunition boxes as seats. That's where most of the briefings would uh, be conducted. I remember with very grave looks on their faces, Colonel Moore and uh, General Larson, General Westmoreland standing in front of the map. And the exchange got a little heated at times. It became obvious, as I said, as the time passed, that uh, a tremendous beating had been given to the, uh, the second or seventh. I became so distraught when the casualty figures went above 200 that I remember all of us were tired. And we were sleeping around the CP in pup tents. And uh, I can recall, I just got up, walked out of the tent when I realized that a good friend of mine, a captain, had been killed, trying to save another guy's life. I remember Major Millay came out to my tent and kicked. He said, you going to come back to work? And I said, sir, I can't deal with it. I said, I just got to get myself together. And I wrote my wife a letter and I said, I'm wondering whether I'm cut out to be a soldier. I uh, didn't know it was going to be like this. And then they brought in a refrigerated van at our CP location in which they, I suppose that was a transfer point to bring in the bodies and whatnot. It was just a very traumatic experience. We could just about see from where we were located. We were at a place called Cateca, which was an old French Vietnamese tea plantation. And off in the distance, we could see the B-52 strikes going on at Idrang, and they would send them in in trail. We couldn't see the bombs drop, but you could just about catch the glint of the silver on the wings. And I remember the whole time we were there, all you heard were bombs being dropped and explosions and artillery being fired. Just constantly without let up. And if that wasn't enough, before the the Albany debacle, we got attacked at the brigade headquarters. And uh, at night, this maybe happened about a day before the first or the seventh, or the second or seventh debacle happened. It's been so long. And I think they put about 10 or 15 rounds in the air of 81 and 82 HE, high explosive rounds, before the first one hit the ground. Now, I hate to say it this late date, but very few of us had actually dug in. We were laying in pop tents, and we didn't think that that was going to happen to us. I recall we had about seven or eight guys killed and uh, Lord knows how many wounded. And I remember we counted at least 50 or so tail fins still sticking in the ground, trying to estimate how many rounds they had fired at us. I'll never forget that night because there was a young kid. One, I remember seeing a pup tent where it around and landed right next to it. And you see the guy's boots sticking out where it obviously killed him. And we were running around trying to sort guys out and see what seriously one of those young kid with blonde hair sitting there kind of dazed. I walked up to him and said, you okay? And he said, yes, sir. I said, here. And I took my canteen and gave him a drink of water. I said, wait right here and uh, we'll get you back to Aunt Kay. And I remember when uh, 
I forget when. I think I went to check on him to see if the medics had gotten him, and the guy was dead. And I couldn't believe it. I said, what do you mean he's dead? They had him covered up in a poncho laying on the stretcher, and he said, well, he died of shock or something. To this day, I didn't know that that could happen to a guy. I remember Colonel Myers sitting in the one building that we had at this location, reading the Bible, when it all had quieted down a bit. He's a very, very religious guy, and the saddest look on his face about uh, what had happened. We knew we were in, in a war. And then after it was all over, we loaded up on trucks and jeeps and whatnot, and the decision was made for us to drive from Pleiku back to Ank. Now, the mode of transportation in those days was to put the troop strength guys and the rifle companies in what we called cattle cars, because that's literally what they are, just cram guys into them. And I suppose a, a cattle car could hold maybe 50, 70 guys, maybe a little more than a platoon, which would be what, uh, maybe three or four. It's been so long. Two or three maybe uh, cattle cars per rifle company. Now, you've got to recall that the fighting strength of the 2nd, 7th, and 1st, 7th were three rifle companies each. All that was left of the 2nd, 7th, I think it was in one and a half cattle cars. I'm not sure, but it was very, very small. And we drove back to Anke and went through the gate. And I remember General Kennard was standing there with the division staff. The band was playing Gary on. And uh, it was pitiful because we all looked back behind us. We were in the lead because we were the brigade headquarters and the first or seventh right behind us and the second seventh right behind them. And I think they had about two cattle cars. And I can recall duffel bags. Each guy, when you went out in the field, all your belongings were kept in a duffel bag on top of your bunk, on top of your cot. And usually when a guy would get killed, they would appoint an officer to inventory his personal effects. And I remember seeing right away we all leaped out of our because we wanted to go around and see who'd been killed and so on and so on, looking for friends. And uh, I remember seeing lieutenants, one lieutenant was on one knee, checking out all the guys' personal belongings inventory because they were sending it over. They would also publish the names of KIAs in the daily bulletin. In any unit in the military, you always have a daily bulletin. And uh, it lists things of uh, professional nature, announcements that everyone will read, remember, or admonishments by a division commander. And at the end of the Daily Bulletin, they would always have an appended page which would list the guys who were killed by name, rank, and serial number. And if anyone had any claims against his estate. They had so many casualties. I remember that thing went up to about four or five pages. And then they started adding to it congratulatory messages from the rest of the military, especially the Marines who think that they can do better than anyone for anything. I remember the Marine Commandant, I don't recall his name at the time, had this long, glowing tribute to the, the first cab guys of what they'd done. We went back, and of course, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day was a few days away. And I remember that Thanksgiving dinner, very, very somber. Very, very somber. And I remember there was a joke among some of the survivors of the second seventh. I remember... Uh, uh, Captain, um, he was later killed in another Vietnam tour. I remember him walking and said, you want a rifle company? He said, you can have mine right now. <laughs> because so many guys had been, one guy showed me his rifle had been shot out of his hands. And we just kept hearing war story after war story. I remember everybody was talking about Lieutenant Marm and what he'd done. And they said, well, he'll never be Adonis because they, they shot him in the face or something. And uh, then after all that was over, uh, Colonel Brown and Colonel uh, Colonel Moore went off to 
I think it was a three-day weekend R&R to Dillette. And Colonel Moore had grabbed me and said, uh, we had our moment in history. I said, whatever you say, sir. He said, I want you to write up the after-action report. And so we loaded up a Jeep on a caribou that used to be an Army inventory-type aircraft, but now it's in the Air Force. And I remember the two pilots and I and crew chief were sitting there waiting for these guys to show up, and they showed up, Colonel, both colonels. And on the flight to Delat, which is a big resort up in the highlands, uh, Colonel Moore would yell in my ear about, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and he'd show me stuff. He'd written it all down on about 10 pages of uh, yellow legal paper. and. Uh, then we uh, landed at the airstrip with the lot, and this contingent of people showed up. And Colonel Moore looked at me and winked and said, "I'll see you in a couple of days." You know, we went back a couple of days and picked him up. He showed me some corrections he made to the manuscript, and I took that manuscript and I remember holding on to it. And when I got back, we got the word that they were going to put the third brigade in for a presidential unit citation. And once again, since I had been talked to by Colonel Moore. Colonel Brown said, you're going to write? I said, yes, sir. So I started writing it, and then I was later told that I think J.D. was coming down from division, that they decided that they'd put the entire division in for the PUC because how can you separate out the units that were not in the 3rd Brigade that supported the 3rd Brigade so well? For example, the Air Force contingent, the general support helicopters, other artillery battalions who didn't normally support the 3rd Brigade. And so the decision was made to put the... uh, entire division for the award. And even then, even though we know we knew that we had done something big, the enormity of what we had accomplished didn't really hit home until my wife started sending me newspaper clippings and things. You know. And then thereafter when I came back to uh Vietnam, or rather to the States and I was dying to the Central Military History that I began to realize that Something real big had happened. Like I said, you could have been in the Battle of Gettysburg and not know that there was the most bloody war, uh, a battle in Civil War. If, you know, your worldview was just to your left and to your right. And then when I was doing research on the on the battle for the Chapter 7 firefights, I remember going to the Defense Intelligence Agency to try to get any intelligence on what the enemy uh, perception of what they did and I found out that they lie as much as they say we do, you know, in terms of what they accomplished. They'd kill the first carrier division 20 times over and so forth and so on. I remember that we had a lessons learned conference where we would sit around and talk about, well, what do we learn about this operation? Are our artillery techniques good? How about our maneuver capabilities? And I remember Colonel Moore and Colonel Brown both saying one of the lessons learned was that American troops are too aggressive. I never thought I'd hear that, that, uh, we have all of these advantages. We had artillery, all kinds of firepower capabilities, and uh, maneuver, being able to move the helicopters so fast that uh, don't be too aggressive where you put yourself in a position where you lose your advantage. Case in point, if you get less than 50 meters away from the enemy, you are going to be pretty darn crazy to call on your own artillery because of the what they call a circular area probable. That means that any round, the closer they can get, to the target is within a 50-meter circle. So you always try to stay outside a 50-meter range to make sure you can use it. And the VC knew that. And so they would try to hug us knowing that we couldn't use the artillery and that, therefore, they could then say, you just like we are. We have rifles and you have rifles and all. Who sees whom first? But uh, I later became a company commander in uh, January, I think it was, and uh, the morale was kind of high. Uh, because of the uh, 
accomplishments. And we started getting all kinds of VIP press people coming over to uh, talk to us. I remember Howard Tuckner of NBC News uh, going out with my company a couple of times. The guy, MIA, who got later found out he was kidnapped by the VC and executed. But I remember we went out with him and he uh, wanted to be right up in front with everybody. And uh, it was just a good thing. I was still the assistant operations officer. And by this time, Colonel Moore had been promoted to full colonel from lieutenant colonel, had taken over the 3rd Brigade. Colonel Brown had gone down to uh, work in, in MACV. And I was sitting in the talk. White Wing was in operation at the time. And I remember Dylan came over to me and said, you have your field gear with you. I looked at him like he was crazy. I said, man, I'm in Vietnam. What do you think? He said, you now see company commander. I said, why? He said, Captain Koga was seriously wounded. In an action, he was a C Company commander. He'd been my bunkmate over on the boat. And I remember they told me, get on that helicopter, take some sea rations. And they flew me out to C Company. And I could tell the pilot was taking fire because you can tell by the way they fly. And uh, he was invading and whatnot. And he just hovered and I jumped out. And I hit the ground. And Lieutenant Applegate, who was a C Company commander, crawled over to me and he handed me compass, binoculars. And his what we call SOI, signal operating instruction, has all your code words for your call signs and whatnot. And then he tried to get back on that. I said, wait a minute, well, I don't even know anybody's name. You know, I said, let's figure out what's going on. And he told me that they had had two KIAs, two guys killed, two sergeants, and they were trying to retrieve their bodies. I later found out that the reason why he got relieved and they didn't give him the company after Koga uh, got shot up was because in the Army, you never leave an American dead or wounded on the battlefield. And when they call you up and say, all your people present and accounted for, he said yes, and didn't tell battalion commander that there were two guys that still had not been retrieved. And so that was my first mission, to go get these two sergeants. And uh, they didn't, they being the other leaders in the company, didn't want Lieutenant Applegate around. One Lieutenant called and said, get him out of his company, sir, quick. So, so I found out everybody's name and the different call signs, and I said, go ahead and continue on your mission. And we had one platoon trying to approach where the bodies were. They'd been laying out in the rice paddy a couple of days, all bloated and stiff and whatnot. I remember the first one we got to, they had the guy's wallet had been obviously looked at and pictures of his family and his kids and whatnot laying all over the place. And there were about three or four dead enemy by him. But uh, that was my first introduction to White Wing, and uh, thereafter... It was just one thing after another. We were always moving. We never stayed, as I recall, in any one place longer than three or four days. We uh, were just moving all over northeastern Binden province. And if you weren't in contact yourself, that is to say that when the rifle company went out, you always were within mutually supporting distance. What do I mean by that? That means that although you may not have been able to see the other companies, you were in radio contact with them so that you could be either airlifted to support him, say B Company, if they got into contact, or vice versa, if C Company, my company, got into contact. And you try to stay within mortar range so that our mortars, if he ran into trouble, could could support him. We had a particularly rough operation one day. I don't remember exactly when. I know we were working in concert with B Company because I saw the best demonstration of use of artillery I'd ever seen or heard of. He got into trouble in a village with, uh, he made contact with a heavy Pavin or North Vietnamese force. And I remember just through the use of artillery, they were able to break contact. That orchestrated artillery was the best use of it I've ever seen. And I remember after that happened, you could actually look through your binoculars and see the 
enemy over in the village. We also see women and children. And we were in like one part of the village and maybe there was a 100, 150 meter open space of rice paddy. And I was sitting down eating lunch and they had these big earthen jars all situated throughout the village where they had to be store rice in them. And we saw one of them moving and kept looking. And all of a sudden the guy jumps out. It was a tab and he had on a khaki uniform. He obviously was disheveled and whatnot. And he had his hands over his head and he was chatting away in Vietnamese. And about four or five of them all of a sudden came out of hiding. They were right in among us. And I remember calling the battalion commander and telling him. And a few days later, we found uh, five or six what they call uh, 12.7 millimeter heavy machine guns. Two of them still packed in Cosmoline that they had set up. And uh, they were equivalent to our 50 caliber. We actually used them that night and put them in our perimeter defense. I remember they had green tracers and... uh, Helicopter pilot saw us firing one of them, test firing. He said, man, if they were shooting one of those things at me, I think I'll auto-rotate, which is the way you can get on the ground for it, and resign from the Army and go back and be a farmer or something. But uh, we were quite proud of that because they put them all on a helicopter, and or two helicopters. And I remember we flew back to division headquarters, and I went up to G2 with the lieutenant platoon leader and his platoon sergeant who had found him first and we presented him to he said give these to General Kennard tell him that C company says what else do you want done for your country and you know we were disheveled we stank and had shame this that and the other MPs were looking at us because we were kind of scrounging and uh, said let's get on back to where the real war is troops and we just walked on back to our company got on a helicopter went back out but they mounted two of those machine guns in front of the division headquarters and I remember uh, they didn't say where they came from. So some guys in the company, this was later, actually went out there and put a sign up and said, a courtesy of Charge and Charlie, a C company. But the morale was high. I remember that was where I had my first experience with uh, how KIAs can really affect you other than the previous experience that I drank. I had a young kid named Douglas Weiss who had tried to get home by making up a bogus story that his mother was deathly ill. And of course, Red Cross checked it out and found out that. Uh, he was not, that she was not ill. And uh, I called him in. I said, look, Weiss, I said, everybody's going to come back. I'm the most cautious company commander in the world. I said, all of us are going to go home. And he kind of looked down and said, well, I tried. I said, just stay cool and, and be careful. When we got into our first firefight in Wash, Masher White Wing, he was standing on the city, kneeling on one side of a banyan tree, firing his rifle. And, uh, I kept looking at him because I said, if well, he keeps that up, maybe we can put him in for metal or something. I turned around to talk on the radio, and I was standing up. Turned back around, half his head was gone. And I remember we wrapped him up in a poncho. It was raining, so we couldn't get him out, and he laid there in the jungle off in a little distance while we waited for a helicopter the next day. I've never forgotten him. When I got back here to Washington, and they finally finished the Vietnam Memorial, his was the first name I went to look for. Because I remember I heard, but I didn't get directly involved, that. Uh, there was a big argument between his parents. I'm not sure whether they're separate or not as who got the insurance money or something. And then another big experience we had, we had a young kid named Vance who was kidnapped by the VC. We got to this town. They gave us about a three-day break where we'd go get some shower. They set up a shower point at a stream near this village, and we were told, if you go through the village, go and don't ever go by yourself and always carry a weapon. And the MPs were even traveling around in threes and fours. And we had this young whippersnapper named Vance. He'd been in the 82nd Airborne and had come from the Dominican Republic. And he had the CIB. He couldn't have been more than 19, 20 years old. 
and used to give us hell about Gary on everything. And it sort of created a friendly rivalry. And he'd lost a friend of his or whatever, but apparently he disobeyed orders and took a rifle and just went on. He was going down to the village. I forget the name of the village and get drunk and get laid. And, uh, it was only about five or six hours after he was missing that the platoon leader had enough guts to come and tell me that the guy was missing. And so I got most of the company together. The guys were taking showers all over the place. And we went out and tried to figure out where he was. Couldn't find him. Then I decided before it was getting dark, I better go tell Colonel Moore. And I don't have to tell you what kind of reaction I got for that. The next day, we took the entire battalion out looking for him and never found him. I remember that's when Howard Tuckler joined us. And uh, he wanted to be up front. I can't forget him because he'd always comb his hair before he'd get in front of the camera. And I told the point man to recon by fire when we moved through the jungle, which means if you see something worth shooting at, go ahead and do it. And Howard Tucker couldn't tell the enemy fire from the friendly fire. And every time he'd hear a burst of fire, he'd dive down on the ground. He had on this real sharp-looking, expensive uh, jumpsuit. And uh, we'd all kind of look at him, you know. And I came back to the States, and about a year or so later, the casualty branch called me up. I used to check with Colonel Moore was stationed in Pentagon. He used to do the same. They finally told us they found Vance's body. And when I looked at the coordinates, it was not too far from where we'd been looking for him. He'd been riding a motor scooter with a Vietnamese woman holding on back behind him. The VC kidnapped him, executed him on the spot, and buried his body. That was Colonel John Anthony Cash. Next week, we'll hear the rest of his interview, where he tells more incredible stories, reflects on the war as a whole, and talks about coming home. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.